demigods chasing human women, epic battles, wars to end all wars. You can find mystery, political intrigue, espionage. There is romance, betrayal, seduction, sex, drama. There are stories that will make you laugh and cry, despair and hope, cheer for the good guys, cheer against the bad guys. That just sounds like all of your Netflix and Amazon playlists, right? And it's all here. And that's even before you get to Revelation, which is even more spectacular stuff. Revelation has good angels and bad angels. Revelation has angels you don't know if they're good or bad, riding horses that you've never dreamed of, right? There are creatures you can hardly fathom because the descriptions of them are so fantastic. Wars that ravage entire continents. Denomic, denomic creatures, demonic creatures, sorry. Wow. That are so grotesque, they sit and wait for women to give birth so they can eat their child. And there are evil armies of mythic proportion that make Tolkien's final battle seem tame. And then you get to the end. And you realize God gave us this story within stories, within stories. Because in the end, he wins. Love wins. And you start to realize that no matter what happens in the world, no matter how much evil, disaster, tragedy, darkness, Category 5 hurricanes that decide to stop over an island and kill tens of thousands of people, no matter what, love wins. Love wins. Love always wins. That's the story of Revelation. That's the story of the whole Bible. And I know if we let these stories get inside of us, we will believe it. And as we believe these stories, we will be made new. Because in these stories, we meet the Christ. And that's the business he is in, making all things new. Which is exactly what this story is about. Jesus meets a woman at a well, and the woman is made well, is made new. But here's the thing. Like all great stories, this one has so many layers to it that we have to spend time with it. You know when you think your favorite novels? Have you, ever, have you ever gone back to your favorite novels? Dave, ever gone back? Many times, right? So I've read like Brothers Karamazov like seven times in my life, and every time I read it, there's something new there. These are what the Bible stories are like. They're so layered, you have to spend time with them. See, there's a couple important guidelines to reading Bible stories. Bless you. Couple important guidelines. There's many guidelines, but two that I always try to hold on to when I'm reading Bible stories. One is, after you've figured out what it all means, just keep reading it until the Holy Spirit shows you that it means something else. And then something else again and something else again. And another good guideline to reading story is, don't be fooled by the ordinary details. Because the ordinary details in biblical stories are probably not ordinary. See, I love this story now. But it didn't used to be in my top ten. It didn't even used to be one of my favorite stories. It was just another story in the Bible for me. I thought I knew everything it could possibly mean. And so it was a story I never returned to. And compared to most of the other stories, it's a pretty boring story on the surface. Like, honestly, when you can read about all this other stuff, why wouldn't you instead of reading this? But it was about eight years ago, and I studied it for a series we were doing here at Cana. And it just became something totally different. And studying again to bring it back into this series of the Eucharist and in all that we've talked about this year, just even more and more and more. I love this story. And it's filled with ordinary details 
that are not so ordinary, like verse 4. He had to go through Samaria. Hi, Roger. Coming in? Okay. You read the story, like you read a lot of biblical stories, you come across a line like this, you just go right past it. Except here's the thing. He didn't have to go through Samaria. This is one of these magnificent, ordinary statements that are not ordinary at all. Yes, it is true. It is definitely true that where he was in Judea is directly south of Samaria, and where he was going back to Galilee is directly north of Samaria. So yes, the shortest route would be to go through Samaria, no doubt. But here's the thing. Any Jewish person who was serious about his or her religion was not going through Samaria. And if they had to go through Samaria, they were not going to stay for long, and they definitely were not going to engage the locals. So, he didn't have to go through Samaria. Let's do a little History 101 on the Samaritan-Jewish relationship to get us started so we can maybe be intrigued by what's happening here in this story that we're going to be in for a while. Because this, I think, will help us realize how extraordinary this ordinary statement is. The common understanding is that the Samaritans were of mixed race and so the Jews did not like them. But that is a simplistic, reductionist, black and white historical understanding of a very complex issue. And it doesn't tell the whole story at all. All that, all that understanding does is further racism and prejudice. All right? Ancient history, current history, all history is always much more complex and decidedly not black and white. So let's get into it and see what we can find out. So Solomon, ring a bell, right? That's a great story. Love Solomon. The, the, the decline of the Solomon Empire is one of my, that's in my top 10 list of stories because everyone doesn't realize. It's, isn't it amazing? Like if, when you hear the name Solomon, you think greatest king, right? Well, David and then Solomon and wisest man on earth. Have you ever read the fall of the Solomon Empire? He was a nightmare. He brought child sacrifice back to Israel. So, great story. Anyway, so he died, okay? And this empire that was basically started by his father, David, was split in two. Okay? Israel, that's the green up on the map. This was the northern kingdom. These were the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh and others. So they considered Samaria their capital while the southern kingdom of Judah considered Jerusalem their capital. But this split was not black and white. It wasn't that simple. And it wasn't caused by new animosities. To understand the split of the Solomon Empire, you have to go all the way back to Genesis and read how much the sons of Jacob didn't get along. Remember the sons of Jacob? They were so nice, they sold someone into their own brother into slavery, these guys. These guys became the fathers of the 12 tribes. Okay? So by the time of the end of Solomon's empire, these divisions and animosity among the tribes were ancient. So you have to start there in understanding the split. Then, some 700 years before Christ, Israel was taken captive by the king of Assyria. So Israel at the time was under the leadership of Hosea, and they decided it would be a good idea to stop paying taxes to <laughs> the most powerful kingdom on the earth at that time. Not a, not a smart idea at all. So, and you can read that great story in 2 Kings 17. See, I'm just going to keep plugging that you should be reading the Bible because it's a great story all day. But anyway, so you can read that. Now, certain historians state that probably at least 27,000 Israelites, this is the reds. See the reds? Don't look at the green. That's, that was later. That's the Babylonians. But the reds 
over 27,000 Israelites the king of Assyria took out of their kingdom. Think about that. There wasn't probably many more than that. Okay? And then what the king of Assyria did is he repopulated that area that used to be Israel with people from all his other territories that he had conquered. So he brought in Babylonians, Kuthites, people from Hamath, as well as the Avites and the Sephirvites. Get the spelling so you get an A on the test later. Okay, all of these people he brought in. And that was what led to the southern kingdom, Judah, claiming that they were the true Jewish people. And here's why. They believed the Samaritans, that's what the Israelites were now called, were not pure descendants of the original 12 tribes. Some assumed intermarriage had obviously taken place when all these other foreigners were brought in, and intermarriage was expressly forbidden by the law of Moses. And others went as far as to say the Israelites had been taken captive, and so the Samaritans were not even half Hebrew. But remember, ancient animosities were at play. And this was a very convenient way to establish superiority and push agendas, especially the us-them narrative, which is the curse of humanity. That's the great, great curse of humanity, the us-them narrative. Because watch how this works. So there's, there's Judah's narrative of what Samaritans are. All right, so let's go to the other side, the, the them side. Here's their narrative. Samaritans insisted, and still do, there's actually a small amount of Samaritans left in the world. They still do that they were not foreigners and not intermarried. Some did intermarry, but not all of them. And they were, in fact, the direct and pure descendants of Joseph. And they believed their understanding of the Mosaic law and of Moses' instructions to the Hebrew people is the correct one. For example, they were convinced and had scriptural support that Mount Gerizim and not Jerusalem is the holy place chosen by God. So we go to Deuteronomy, find out if they're just making it up. And actually, here's what they have. This is Moses telling Joshua, when you cross the Jordan, these tribes shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these tribes shall stand on Mount Ebal to pronounce curses. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, Naphtali. Obviously, Gerizim is a pretty big and important mountain. And what did they do when they crossed over? They did exactly what Moses told them to do. So Joshua separated them out, and Mount Gerizim became that, and Mount became the other. Seems like a valid argument. Right? So I want to make a side note here. Because this is a perfect example of why we should always exercise much humility and grace when we are debating scripture, or debating anything for that matter. That's why last Sunday, thank you all for letting me take a break last Sunday. My wife and I celebrated 25 years of bliss, and it was wonderful. And, but last Sunday, Rich and Justice had a wonderful debate. Two very knowledgeable Christians who looked at two completely opposite sides. You see, here's the thing. All of us, everybody, always, always bring our own stories to our perspectives, our own stories to our convictions. 
There's no other way to approach life. This is what we do. And so then our truth is becomes something that is very personal. For example, this example. Here's two sets of facts. So what makes one person attracted to and informed by these facts while another person is attracted to and informed by those facts? I don't know, but it happens. So let's take something outside of theology and let's take one of the great questions right now, climate change. Okay? There are scientific facts that suggest this is a unique moment in the history of the universe and climate change is definitely being caused by humanity. And there are people that are attracted to those facts and they are informed by those facts. There are also facts that suggest, scientific facts that suggest, nope, this is just a cycle of the universe. These things have happened before and humanity is not the major cause of climate change. And those people are attracted to those facts and those facts inform them. So we can sit here and engage in the us-them narrative that makes us feel so good and say, well, they're stupid and they're wrong, obviously, because our facts are better. Well, they're stupid and they're wrong because obviously our facts are better. And there's no conversation. There's no learning. There's no growth. We should be humble. We should be filled with grace. You know, Come back to theology. Here's one example. Another example. You can read scripture and you can be committed to the idea that Jesus had to die for God to love us. You can read scripture and you can be committed to the idea that no, Jesus did not die for God to love us. Jesus died to show God loved us. Okay. So are we going to hate each other over this? Are we going to be convinced that you're going to hell because you're wrong and I'm right? I'm in a Bible study with five ministers from Worcester. Five different, distinct, and unique branches of Christianity. We all believe the Bible. I was brought up in a very small, small, narrow idea of Christianity, and we were the only true Bible believers. No, we, <laughs> we all believe the Bible. These five ministers, we sit down together, we read the exact same Bible, we all have different translations, multiple translations, so we're all trying to get to it. And none of us are sitting at that table trying to convince anyone to leave their branch and come over to the right side. We're just all trying to discover Jesus Christ and what it means and how much he loves us. And of course, this story is dealing with this exact thing. It's amazing how Jesus comes and models this idea for us as he speaks with this woman. And we're going to get into that and talk about the whole us-them narrative. But that's for another week. So let's get back here. So, let's go back to our history. As time went on, the relationships between these two people groups deteriorated in a gray mess of the influence of occupying forces, theological difference, violent clashes. So, the Jews destroyed the Samaritan Temple in 128 BC. See, here's the biggest, this is why the us-them dynamic and the us-them narrative is the biggest curse of humanity and what Jesus is trying to break when he came is because the us-them dynamic justifies violence. There's no other way. It justifies violence. 
they are wrong. They should not have a temple. They do not believe in the true God. They are not true Jews and Israelites. We are going to destroy that temple. See how that's justified? It's easy to justify violence when you buy into the us-them dynamic. And then, oh, surprisingly, what happened after that? Samaritans went up to Jerusalem and desecrated the temple. Because those guys were wrong, and they did it to us. And so the cycle of violence that humanity has been in for thousands and thousands and tens of thousands of years is all because of the us-them dynamic. And God's just like, well, I made you all, and I love you all, and I died for all of you. Why? And then he comes to Samaria and models that, much to the disciples' chagrin, as we'll get to when we get to that part of the story. Much to our chagrin. I'm sure even some of what I'm saying, which even for me years ago would have sounded incredibly dangerous and blasphemous, is bothering some of you. The us-them dynamic is so powerful, and I'm, I'm off my notes, but I'm so excited to get to this when we get there. See, we do this because it makes us feel better, right? If them are wrong, then we must be right. That's what it's all about. It's about self-preservation. It's about feeling better ourselves. When Jesus comes and he's just like, no, here's a mirror. You're just like them. You're all the same. You all need grace. You all need the exact same amount of grace. So, by the time of Christ, there was no relationship between these groups. They hated each other from human perspective, rightfully so. Come on, think about it. If you were, if you were Samaritan, and one day, these people who I've already told you you're not true believers came and destroyed your temple, how would you feel? So rightfully so, they hated each other. And vice versa. And they had no dealings with each other, it says right there. John tells us. And this is, John even telling us this story is amazing. Because John was one of those that was, you know, true, like, Jesus, all those other people shouldn't be doing what they're doing. Jesus is like, no, John, let them do whatever they want to do. Okay? So John's massive being made new must have been incredible. All right. And one, so... And one more side note on the way of the opening thoughts on great stories. This whole Jewish-Samaritan divide that I've gone into is a complicated, intriguing, challenging, disturbing, exciting, fantastical story of an epic struggle between two people groups. And guess where you can read all about it? In the Bible. Pick the Bible up. It's a great story. Read the Bible. It's incredible. All right. So with that background, with this beginning of this story, and you, and you can, I want you to read through it and keep reading through it and get to know it. But with that background, does it begin to make sense that he had to go through Samaria is not an ordinary statement at all. He did not have to go through if he didn't want to. He could have went around. But Jesus had to go through Samaria because true love demanded it. Yes, there were certainly arguments to be made based on us-them hatred, us-them defilement, us-them theology, etc., etc., but true love does not acquiesce to hate, and true love does not worry about defilement, and true love does not worry about who's right and wrong on a theological exam. Hate has no power over love. Truly loving others prevents defilement. And true love of God and love others is theology. The only correct theology there is. Everything else is just a footnote. Christ was true love. 
Love that does not see them. Love that does not worry about consequence. Love that risks everything for the other. I can't believe you sang ledges today. Like honestly, when you were singing ledges, which you guys should record, that was amazing. And then all of a sudden it gets to the line, I want to just learn how to love. Not the feeling, I want to know all the consequences of love. That's what this whole story is about. That's what Christ was about. Christ risked everything for the other. This kind of love is the love that keeps all of us, all of us Christians, at different times in our lives, sometimes more often than others, following a Christ that we have made up in our minds. Because the pursuit of personal piety, the pursuit of self-preservation, the pursuit of keeping the us-them dynamic alive, the pursuit of being right and everybody else is wrong, is so much easier than this kind of Christ love. So much. Jesus had to go through Samaria. Love demanded it. So, where do we have to go? Where do we have to go? Where is the Spirit leading us? Where do we keep go avoiding even when Christ is calling us to join Him? Where? You know, sometimes where we have to go is not even a choice. Sometimes it's a path we just find ourselves on. Like one day we're perfectly healthy and the next day we're horribly sick. One day we're in a perfectly good relationship, the next day it's broken. One day we're financially secure, the next day we're not. One day we live in a beautiful house on a beautiful island, and the next day it's gone. So sometimes it's just a path we find ourselves on. But I'm still asking the question because often we're not fully engaged in that journey. We're not fully embracing that path. We're just trying to get off of it. And so my question is, but maybe we have to go through it. Maybe we're being called to a well at midday to meet the Christ, whom we think we know, and we do know parts of, but a Christ that wants to reveal so much more of himself to us in this place, who longs to bring even more freedom, more redemption, more heaven into our lives here and now. Who can say they're fully redeemed? Because if you can say that, I, I want to know. I'm not. So even those Samarias we do not choose to go, but are going through nonetheless, they may be the very well of living water we personally deeply need. Even though we can't see it or don't know it. It might be grace hidden in, as C.S. Lewis would say, a severe mercy. But it will make us new if we can embrace it. Or maybe... The Samaria we are being called to is a choice, but it's still a journey for us. It's a journey for us to go to a place where Christ can, like he did with the woman at the well, open our eyes to all the places in us that are still shadows, that are prisons, that are death. Places that harbor hate, unforgiveness, fear, resentment, anger, 
us-them paradigms that make us feel good about ourselves but are really just destroying us in the end? You know, when you rationalize all the reasons you hate that person or you don't want to be with that person, all those dark places. Maybe it's a Samaria that we have to go through because it will illuminate for us all the places that the bad wolf still fully dominates in our life. A Samaria that will bring us face to face with enemies, real or imagined, because a lot of our enemies are just imagined. We've created them to feel better about ourselves. And this will offer us a chance to learn from Christ what love really looks like and let that love flow into us and out of us and make us new too. Or maybe it is, like for Jesus, a Samaria we have to pass through so we can be part of someone else's freedom, someone else being made new as we share the love we have experienced from Christ with them. Listen, I know we can always take the long road around Samaria. I know that. Even when we still have no choice even when we have no choice, we can still refuse to embrace the journey. But especially when we have a choice, we often say no, don't we? Don't we? I know I do. No, I, I don't, I don't want to be like Christ. I don't need you telling me who I need to forgive. And I don't need you to explain to me why, based on what Jesus says in scriptures, we should be caring for the poor and the outcasts and the immigrants. I don't need any of that. I don't want to go through that Samaria. I don't need to make amends with family members. I don't need to forgive anybody. Stop already. It's easy to say no, and I get it. It makes us feel good to keep those things. But how about this? You already know the end of the story, even though we're going to take a long time getting into it. It changed everything. So maybe let's together try to be courageous and follow the Spirit, the good wolf, the Christ, into a land we maybe have been avoiding for years. I think if we do, we will know freedom for ourselves and for others. We will know what it is to be made new. And the kingdom, as it is in heaven, will be a little more on earth. Might God help us all. Amen. Come to